0: Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs. If you are indeed back, I doubt it. I don't think anyone's listening anymore. I don't think anyone's participating anymore because George Moore has written the worst, the worst book ever. I hate this book so much. Here's some prose from the chapter we just read, chapter six. While mannered people do not think sincerely, their minds are full of evasions and subterfuges. <clears throat> real sentence. Here we go. This is a real sentence of a real book. Well mannered people constantly feel that they would not like to think like this or that they would not like to think like that or whosoever and who now let's start again. Well mannered people constantly feel that they would not like to think like this or that they would not like to think like that and whosoever feels he would not like to think out to the end every thought that may come into his mind should come should turn from Parnassus, like what are we doing here what What are we doing here? The guy that wrote this book clearly hates us, clearly hates everyone except himself. so what are we doing here? We owe this guy no favors, and yet we're spending giving him so many hours of our lives, and he is just. You're just disrespecting our time in every way possible. It's immensely infuriating that someone could be so disrespectful to their own audience. Chapter 7 As soon as the applause died away, Yeats, who had lately returned to us from the States with a paunch and huge stride and an immense fur overcoat, rose to speak. We were surprised at the change in his appearance and could hardly believe our ears when instead of... Taking us as he used to do about our old stories came down from generation to generation. He began to thunder like Ben Tillard against the middle classes, stamping his feet, working himself into a great temper, and all because the middle classes did not dip their hands into their pockets and give Lane the money he wanted for his exhibition. When he spoke the words of the middle classes, one would have thought that he was speaking against a personal foe, and we looked round, asking each other with our eyes, where on earth our Willie Yeats? had picked up the strange belief that none but titled and carriage folk could appreciate pictures, and we asked ourselves why our Willie Yeats should feel himself called upon to denounce his own class, millers and shipowners on one side and on the other a portrait painter or of distinction, and we laughed. Remembering A.E.'s story, that one day whilst Yeats was crooning over his fire, Yeats had said that if he had his rights he would be Duke of Ormond, A.E.'s answer was, I'm afraid, Willie, you are overlooking your father, a detestable remark to make to a poet in search of an ancestry, and the addition, we both belong to the lower middle classes, was in equally bad taste. A.E. knew that there were spoons in the Yeats' family bearing the butler crest, just as there are portraits in my family of Sir Thomas More, And he should have remembered that certain passages in the Countess Kathleen are clearly derivative from the spoons. He should have remembered that all the Romantic poets have sought illustrious ancestry, and rightly, since Romantic poetry is concerned only with nobles and castles, gonfalons, and oriflames. Villiers de Isle-Adam believed firmly in his descent, and appeared on all public occasions with the Order of Malta pinned upon his coat. And Victor Hugo, too, had inquired out his ancestry in all the archives of Spain and France before sitting down to write, "'Her nanny.' And with good reason, for with the disappearance of Gonfalons and donjons, it may be doubted if my meditation was interrupted by Yeats's voice. "'We have sacrificed our lives for art, but you, what have you done?' "'What sacrifices have you made?' he asked." And everybody began to search his memory for the sacrifices that Yeats had made, asking himself in what prison Yeats was languished, what rags he had worn, what broken victuals he had eaten, as far as anybody could remember he had always lived very comfortably, sitting down invariably to regular meals, and the old green cloak that was keeping with his profession of romantic poet he had exchanged from, for the magnificent fur coat which distracted our attention from what he was saying, so opulently did it cover the back of the chair out of which he had risen, but quite forgetful of the coat behind him he continued to denounce the middle classes, throwing his arms into the air, shouting at us, and we thinking, not at all of what he was saying, but of a story that had been floating about Dublin for some time. A visitor had come back from cool, telling how he had discovered the poet lying on a sofa in a shady corner, a plate of strawberries on his knee, and three or four adoring ladies serving him with cream and sugar, and how the poet, after wiping his hands on a napkin, had consented to recite some verses, and the verses were recited were these I said, a line will take us hours, maybe yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been naught better go down upon your marrow bones, and scrub a kitchen pavement or break stones like an old palper in all kinds of weather, for to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all these, and yet be thought an idler by the noisy set. Of bankers, schoolmasters and clergymen the martyrs call the world. The poet advanced a step or two nearer to the edge of the platform, and stamping his foot he asked again what the middle classes had done for art, and in towering rage, the phrase is no mere figure of speech, for he raised himself up to tremendous height, he called upon the ladies and gentlemen that had come to hear my lecture to put their hands in their pockets and give guineas to the stewards, who were waiting at the doors to receive them, Or better still, to write large checks. By virtue of our subscriptions, we should cease to belong to the middle classes, and having held out his hope, to us he retired to his chair and fell back overcome in the middle of the great fur coat and remained silent until the end of the debate. As soon as it was over... Criticism began, not from my lecture, but of Yeats's speech, and on Saturday night all my friends turned in to discuss his contention that the middle classes had never done anything for for art. A.E. pointed out that the aristocracy had given England no great poet except Byron, whom many people did not look upon as a poet at all, and though Shelley's poetry was unquestionable, he could hardly be considered as belonging to the aristocracy, his father being no more than a Sussex baronet. All the other poets, it was urged, came from middle classes, not only the poets but the painters, the musicians, the sculptors. Yeats's attack upon the middle classes, somebody cried, is the most absurd that was ever made, and at the aristocracy have Byron and the peasants have Burns. All the others belong to us, somebody chimed in. Not even the landowners have produced a poet, and he was answered that Landor was a considerable landed proprietor. But he was the only one. Not a single painter came out of the aristocracy. Lord Carleal's name was mentioned, everybody laughed, and I said that the distinction of the classes was purely an arbitrary one. (laughs) I'm so clever and cool. It was agreed that if riches can poison inspiration, poverty is a stimulant, and then learning... Leaning out of his corner, A.E. remarked that Willie Yeats' best poems were written when he was a poor boy in Sligo, a remark that fanned the flame of discussion, and the difficult question was broached by Yeats. had p- ceased to write poetry, why he had his, all his best poems, A.E. E. said, were written before he went to London. Apart from the genius which he brought into the world is what Sligo, that had given his poetry a turn of its own, "'Everybody knew some of his verses by Hartsman. "'We took pleasure in listening to them again. "'The calves basking on the hillside were mentioned, "'the Colleen going to church, but somebody cried out suddenly. "'He took his Colleen to London and put paint upon her cheeks "'and dye upon her hair and sent her up to Piccadilly. "'Another critic added that the last time he saw her "'she was wearing a fine hat and feathers "'supplied by Arthur Simmons,' cried another. "'as sterile a little wanton as ever I set eyes upon, "'who lives in remembrance of her beauty, "'saying nothing, exclaimed another critic.' And the silences that Yeats's Colleen had observed these many years were regretted somewhat hypocritically, I think. For, as A.E. says, a lit- I know A.E., by the way, a literary movement consists of five or six people who live in the same town and hate each other cordially. <laughs> what a witticism. What a witticism by my famous friend A. E. <laughs> I'm so cool. But if we were not really sorry that Yeats' inspiration was declining, we were quite genuinely interested to discover the cause of it. A.E., my friend who's famous, was certain that he would have written volume after volume if he had never sought a style, if he had been content to write simply him. <laughs> and all his utterances on the subject of style were repeated, because he was a genius. He came this afternoon into National Library, John Eglinton said, another of my famous friends, breaking silence, and he told me he was collecting his writings for a complete edition, a library edition in 10 or 12 volumes, maybe 40 if I feel a little bit mm, righty. (laughs) Righty. But he is only 37. He said his day was over, John Eglinton answered, and in speaking of the style of his last essay, he said, "'Oh, that style? I made it myself.' And then another, Longworth, I think it was, said that he failed to understand how anybody could speak of a style, apart from some definite work already written by him in that style. "'A style does not exist in one's head. "'It exists upon paper, and Yeats, one of my famous friends— has no style, neither bad nor good, for he writes no more. A.E., one of my famous friends, thought that Yeats, another of my famous friends, had discovered a style, and a very fine style indeed, and compared it to a suit of livery, which a man buys before he engages a servant. The livery is made of the best cloth." The gold lace is the very finest, and the cockade can be seen from one side of the street to the other. But when the footman comes, he is always too tall, or too thin, or too fat, so the livery is never worn. Excellent, cried Gogati, and the livery hangs in a press upstairs, becoming gradually (laughs) moth-eaten. What a witticism! What a witticism this clever group has, has has come up with today. Or what will we do next? Oh, oh, we're so brilliant. Everybody, let's wank each other off in a circle. A.E. regretted the variants. He knew them all and preferred the earlier text in every case. And when literary criticism was over, we turned to the poet's own life to discover why it was that he sung no more songs for us. We had often heard him say that his poems had arisen out of one great passion. And the interesting avowal raised, no less interesting question, which produces the finer fruit, the gratified and ungratified passion. It was clearly my turn to speak, and I told how Wessenducknk had built a pavilion at the end of his garden so that Wagner might compose the Valkyrie. And how, at the end of every day, when Wagner had finished his work, Matilde, want, was to visit him. Her visits, inspiring by degrees of great passion, which out of loyalty Wessenducken, they resisted until the fatal day when he read her the poem of Tristan and Isolde. After the reading, they stood looking at each other, and Tristan and Isolde stood looking at each other in the opera. Later, Minna, Wagner's wife, intercepted a letter which she took to Madame Wassendonk. And the interview between the two women was so violent that Wagner had to send his wife to Dresden. The first letter of many that he wrote to Mathilde Wassendonk tells the miserable drowning of the day he withdrew from Switzerland to meditate on suicide. And his setting of some verses of the well-beloved... Regret nothing, he writes from Venice. I beseech you, regret nothing. Your kisses were the crown of my life, my recompense for many years of suffering. Regret nothing, I beseech you. Regret nothing. In-min-na. Mina? Had no doubt as to Richard's guilt, for nor have we but the translator of the letters, Mr. Ashton Ellis, and others have preferred to regard this passion as ungratified, and it is evident that they think that the truth is not worth seeking, since the drama and the music and the letters cannot now be affected thereby. For better or worse, you have the music, you have the drama, you have the correspondence. We can... What can it matter whether an act purely physical happened or failed to happen, everything I answer for thereof I learned Wagner wrote of a realised or an unrealized desire, and as we sat around the fire I broke silence. Love, I said, that has not been born again in the flesh, crumbles like peat ash. Yeats love for Morgon, said he, has lasted for many years, and will continue, and I know that it has always been a pure love. A detestable phrase, A E My famous friend, for it implies that every gratified love must be impure, and from that day onward I continue to meditate the main secret of Yeats's life, my famous friend Yeats that is, until one day we happened to meet at Broadstone Station. We were going to the West. We breakfasted together in the train, and after breakfast, the conversation took many turns, and we walked, talked of her, whom he had loved always, the passion ideal of his life, and why this ideal had never become a reality to him, as Mathilde had become to Richard. Was it really so? Was my pressing question? And he answered to me. I was very young at the time, and was satisfied with... My memory fails me more, perhaps the phrase has never finished. The words I supply the spirit of the sense are merely conjectural mm. such wise words from Yeats mm. <clears throat> all right, speed round here we go. <clears throat> Yes, I understand the common mistake of a boy, and I was sorry for Yeats for his inspiration, which did not seem to have survived his use. But because it had arisen out of an ungratified desire, and I felt a thinking of his sense, it's grown in a vase only to bloom for a season. But if it had been otherwise, on such questions, one may meditate a long while. And while I was not on to the train when Westport, when I remembered my prediction, when but showed me the roses El Camino, his inspiration, I had said it is an end for. He talks about how. He's going to write, and I told Simmons that I had noticed all through my life that a man can tell the subject of his poems and write it, but if he tells he's going to write his poem, he would never write it in Malam. He projected hundreds of poems, and like Yeats Malam, was always talking about style. The word style never came into Malam's conversation, but like Yeats, his belief was that the poet should have a language of his own, and every other act, art I remember him saying as a special language, sculpture, music, painting, why shouldn't the poet have his... He set himself to the task of inventing a language, but it was such a difficult one that it left him very little time for writing. And so we have but 20 sonnets and Le midi d'une forme written in it. Son over, calls, music, painting. Why shouldn't the poet have his? He set himself to the task of inventing a language, but it was such a difficult one that it left him very little time for writing. And so we have... But 20 sonnets in love, first of all, before written in it. Son overcalls the mind bibliot, a carbon knick-knack, wrought, ivory, or jade, or bronze, and like bronze it will acquire a patina. His phrases will never grow old, for they tell us nothing. The secret meaning is so deeply embedded in the generations we'll try to puzzle through them. And in the volume entitled The Wind Among the Reeds... Yeats has written poems so difficult that even the adepts could not disentangle the sense, and since the wind among the reeds has, was has. He has written a sonnet that clearly referred to a house, but to what house? A. E. Inclined to the opinion that it referred to the House of Lords, but the poet, being written from the Eli place, replied that the subject of his sonnet was Cool Park. Mar- Malame could not be darker than this, but whereas to write a language apart from Malamé's sole asceticism and one which he never abandoned after the publication of presse Midi d'Unforn, Yeats advocated two languages, one which he employs himself, another which he would use if he could, but being unable to use it, he counsels its use to others, and he put up a sign post this way to Parnassus it is amusing to think that Malami and Yeats together they would have got on famously until Yeats began to tell Malami that the poet would learn the language he required and Laberi Le Lamami was a subtle mind and he would have thought the idea ingenious that the language is like a spring which rises in the highlands trickles into a river and flows into a river and it needs no filter into the river as passed into the town and he would listen to these with anxious, but Yeats would not have been able to persuade him to. Set out of the Liberian, the journey will happen unless it was he had an a he had no If for folk less than years himself. He had only half a an year, an exquisite ear for the beauty of the folk imagination, of very little folk idiom, uh, not the ways of nature strange. He for a folk for idiom has none uh, has ever loved it, and few have ever been better opportunities of learning. If he had along the uncle's wards of the Sligo town and among the slopes of Ben Bulbin, whither he went daily interested in birds and beasts and the stories of their folk tales, pretty as nosegay as ever was gathered he tried on the slopes There is no prettier book of literature than the Celtic Wilder and one of the tales of Los Gleman, and must have put into Yeats' mind the idea that he has followed ever since it, that the Irish people write very well and when they are not trying to write that they're worn out of a defaced idiom which educated people speak and write and which is known as English and it is Yeats's belief that those among us who refuse to write it are as f- as forced back upon artificial speech which they create and which is often very beautiful. The beauty of paters and Morris's cannot be denied, but their speech, Yeats would say, lacks naturalness. It is not living speech, that is how he would phrase it, and his thoughts. We'll go back to Michael Moran and to the last Gleeman, who thinks, unfortunate, and the two great writers mentioned in Michael wrote, who would be more correct to say he composed for his devil, even though if he wrote living speech, i.e. a speech that has never been printed. Yeats's whole asceticism is expressed in these words Speech that has never been printed. Yeats' holicism is expressed in these words. A speech that has never been printed. And the peasant is... What the fuck? This is the same thing twice. A speech that has never been printed. And the peasant is the only one who can give us speech that has not appeared in print. But peasant speech limits the range of our ideas. A pure benefit, Yeats would say. We must purify ourselves in ignorance. But peasant speech is only adapted to dialogue to this objection he might answer with Lander that, that Shakespeare and the best parts of Homer were written in dialogue and it would be heartless to reply, but not the best parts of your own works, Yeats. Your mind is as subtle as a Brahmin's, a woven, woven along the, and across with ideas, and you cannot catch the idiom as it flows off the lips. You are like Moses who may not enter the promised land, he would not care to answer. Even if what you say be true, you must admit that I have led some other thither. I beg pardon there. And he would fold himself up like a pelican and dream of his disciples. His dream was always as of disciples. Even when I met him in the Cheshire cheese, he was looking for disciples. He sought in vain till he met Lady Gregory and a day... It was for Ireland when she came over to Tilra and met whom do you think? Yeats, of course. Here I must break off my narrative to give a more explicit account of Lady Gregory than the reader will find in Ave Fucking hell. Jesus Christ, this is just I think that's it for today. I can't stand it. It's it's like a form of punishment. It's genuinely like a form of punishment to read this book. Like, if I had to torture someone in, like, a prisoner of war type situation to get information out of them, I would just read them this book, or make them read it. Honestly. Honestly, the worst thing. Worst thing, not even the worst book I've ever read. It's the worst thing that can possibly be presented as a a work of art It's going to say a work of art but any of anything it's the worst thing that's ever been made I don't even think I mean you guys really want say that this is the worst thing that's ever been made and I'm currently watching a documentary called Class Action Park about the water park where people just went there and it was so unregulated that a bunch of people just died um, <laughs> and you know what this book is worse than that water park so um, yeah bye see you tomorrow